I'm Sarah Gross. And I'm Sarah True. And you're listening to If We Were Riding. Okay, Sarah, for the second week in a row, I think this is the first time we've had a guest two weeks in a row. Is that right? Yeah. Well, it makes it easier. You know, we have more of a draft. You can just, you can just sit third wheel. (laughs) You know that I love that draft and I need it right now. (laughs) Don't we all need a little draft right now? (laughs) I mean, the energy savings, totally worth it. So riding with us this week, we have Steve Fleck, who we now know as commentator extraordinaire. But Steve, like I can't even, I, when I think back and for all the different ways you've been in triathlon over all the years, like I know if there's ever, if there's someone who knows everybody in triathlon, it's you. So tell us a bit about like your evolution with the sport. I don't even know where to begin. Um, and I might date myself here. So I competed in what many believe to be the very first triathlon in Ontario in 1981. Uh, sport had been going on in the U.S. for a few years. And, you know, I did the this triathlon in 1981 and no one knew what they were doing. And it was that way for a few years and through the mid 80s. And then it got a bit more serious when Graham Fraser uh, set up the Tri-Sports Triathlon Series in Ontario and we actually had money in the triathlon scene. And on, I, I know this sounds really strange, but the triathlon scene in Southern Ontario kind of rivaled Southern California at the time. And it was because Graham, you know, had gone out and got some good sponsors. There was money. The races were really deep and competitive. In fact, some of the, the top uh, triathletes, uh, Mike Pig, um, uh, I know for one, Scott Tinley, et cetera, they came up and they raced up in Southern Ontario a few times. So we got exposure to like the best, you know, the best in the world. And it was and pretty exciting. Steve, where did you fit in that ranking? Were you like, I, were you up there with Mike Pig or were no, you like, no, no. I was I was kind of you know you know way back, and I was just sort of way out of it. <laughs> but it was it was so cool to be in the same race as Mike Pig, um, and uh, and Scott Tinley, and you got to know, and it was so cool back then because you got to know the you know, you got to know them personally. You got to hang out with them after the race, so um, you're chatting it up with uh, the greats of the sport. And, you know, then it just went from there. And then it was about 10 years of, you know, chasing, you know, Ironman uh, came close to breaking nine a few times, which is, you know, it was okay. It's, you know, sub elite for, for men, not such a, a fast time now, but back then it was, it was kind of okay. Um, and then I kind of packed it in, in 1997, I just got, you know, I'd had enough. I got a big promotion at Segoy when I, where I was working in Vancouver at the time, uh, my son was born that year and I just kind of stepped away from it. Um, and I really haven't done a triathlon since then. Went back to running for a few years. Um, then, uh, then into cycling, just too many sort of injuries, little niggling little injuries. So now I just ride, been riding for 15, uh, 20 plus years, sort of at, at a higher, you know, a higher level. I don't really race, but I ride with some pretty strong, uh, strong riders and cyclists. On the other side of things, I've always, you know, worked in and around the business. So working in sales, marketing, communications with, you know, businesses and brands like in, in the sport. Uh, I was working for Segoy. I've worked in the online event registration business. I worked for one of the wetsuit companies, worked for one of the major distributors of triathlon product in Canada. Um, and then, you know, the last six or seven years, I've been almost exclusively with the um, event announcing. So this is live PA work, you know, at events and then uh, live stream commentary uh, work as well as the streaming, you know, has come on and being really the way that, uh, you know, sports are being broadcast and, and our sports. So running track and field cycling, you know, and triathlon, you're going to see it streaming now uh, more than you're going to see it on network television. Pretty much the only time that you're going to see a sport like triathlon or any of the sports I mentioned um, you know, is at the Olympic Games. I mean, they're just there's just, that's the only time that there's budgets to give them a, a platform for a larger group of people to see them. So streaming is the way to go. And they need good announcers and commentators to, uh, to deliver the action. So that's, well, that's history in a nutshell. Well, will you do commentary for Tokyo? No, I don't, I don't think so. Although um, I just heard that uh, Olympic broadcast service, what's happened. Um, a good friend of mine put me in contact with uh, the people at OBS 
And they, because of the year shift, these are the little ripple effects, you know, of there's ripple effects for athletes, there's ripple effects for volunteers, there's ripple effects for the, uh, the people organizing the games, there's uh, ripple effects for media. And a lot of people who, you know, might have blocked that two or three week time to work, you know, as announcers or commentators for 2020, they've booked something else for next year. So I've actually heard from OBS that there are, you know, potentially some openings. So I'm, I am sort of putting out some feelers, you know, along those lines uh, starting this week. Yeah. Well, I, I think where the benefit uh, for somebody like you is that you can do multiple sports. I know, I know that's been pretty attractive uh, in the U S NBC covers the Olympics. And for example, they had uh, Julie Ertel cover triathlon uh, she also was an Olympic water polo player. So th- for, for a network like that, they say, this is great. We, we get a two for one, you yeah. know, and somebody like you, you could, you could cover cycling, you could cover track and fields, you could cover, al- although I, how much do you know about the field events? Pretty, pretty good. I mean, really? I've worked, I've been, Impressive. I've been really, no, I've, and it's just be being involved in track and field at a high level uh, my whole life. Uh, but also I've worked alongside some, um, some play-by-play people and other commentators who are experts in the shot put or the pole vault. So you kind of learn, you know, as you go along and you know enough to be a good commentator, you know, about it. You don't, you, you couldn't coach, you know, in discus, but you know, the finite details of what makes a great discus throw to get that message across to the, the listeners who are, are listening and watching. Well, I, I think it, you really, you, you're pointing something out that's important, especially when it comes to Olympic commentary, is that you have a lot of people tuning in who have no familiarity with the event. And if you're talking to the layperson, you really do need to be able to communicate it in a way that they understand. So you don't need to go into the really subtle nuance of, you know, this, this rider is producing X power right now and whatever about their bikes. They just need to understand what cycling is, the things they need to be looking out for. So it's in some ways, understanding how to communicate is more important than understanding the event, I'd imagine. Absolutely. And it's a, it's a subtle balance, Sarah. You, you, you need to speak to both of those classes of people or, or groups of people that you mentioned, that the neophyte who doesn't know anything, and then the super nerd. They're both, they're both watching. And I mean, we saw this, you know, after you know, last weekend, I'm sure both of you watched the PTO uh, championships uh, from Challenge Daytona. I mean, there was one group of people saying, this commentary sucks. It's terrible. You know, they're, they're talking about, you know, how do you put your feet in the shoes? Well, like everyone knows how to do that, but no one who was watching that racer event for the first time knows that they have their shoes in the pedals already. They don't know that. So, you, you know, you have to sort of explain it a little bit so that the, the, the neophyte, the person that's watching a triathlon for the first time, you know, understands that. And then the, you know, the hyper nerd, um, you know, you, you give out little tidbits of information to keep them engaged as well. Yeah, that's really, that's actually an interesting commentary in and of itself on like the triathlon community and our expectation of commentary, because we've sort of, we've got really used to, um, media being made just for us. You know, mm-hmm. and like that just goes to show that a lot of the media outlets aren't looking more broadly to like who is our audience and how are we reaching everybody. Um, so I think that's a really good point, Steve. Well, the the the, the phrases inside baseball, I think, is is what the you know commentators use. Is that you know, when you're talking inside baseball, you're talking about all those details about baseball that that only the the data nerd or the real super baseball fan would know about, and. That's, I, I think that's important. And, you know, if you immerse yourself in, in a sport, whether it's cycling or triathlon or, you know, track and field or, you know, a, a, dis, a sub-discipline within track and field, like say the pole vault of super technical one, I mean, you can go, you can go to town, like on all those technical details, but then you start, you know, talking over, you know, over people's heads and you shut down that new person that might be watching for the first time and you don't want to lose them right? Because that's, that's gold. Hey, I found someone, you know, new who's interested in 800 meter running. Well, that's fantastic. I mean, maybe they will take up, you know, track and field or running at at some point in time. I mean, I I don't know about you two, but it was watching sports on TV, you know, back when I was a kid that that's, that was what attracted me, you know, to sports and, you know, the distance running sports and distance and endurance sports in particular. 
Yeah, totally. Okay, we do need to take a break. So I had more to say there, but we will save it. Um, coming up, I'm going to get Sarah's happy light update. Um, Steve's going to give some commentary tips to Sarah. We're going to talk about running versus triathlon versus cycling. Triathlon industry moving forward. We're going to find out what Steve thinks. And we are, of course, going to do I Rock Because. Hey, Sarah, have you seen those new form smart swim goggles? You know, the ones that have the display right on the goggle. So you can see like in real time how fast you're going and your heart rate and stuff. Yeah, I have seen them and I'm really interested because they just added a an open water feature, which is terrific because you can go from the pool to open water and still be able to have those same metrics as you swim. Yeah, I mean, knowing how fast you're going in open water in real time is um, totally amazing. So I think it's going to revolutionize swim training. Absolutely. And if they add like a, a loon detection device to it, I'm sold. Done. And our regular listeners will know that if we were riding and all things feisty is proudly partnered with Orca Sportswear. For 15% off all items on orca.com, please use the code livefeisty15. And that includes the wetsuits. So good deals all around. Okay, so Steve, do you have an SAD light? A what light? I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, those like those happy lamps that give you a, like the right kind of light that's kind of like the sun. If you if you live in a dark gray place, well, let's, Ontario is really let's, sunny. You don't need these things. Ontario is super sunny. It's basically the California of no. I just <laughs> you, said that it's the California of of Canada, sort of. So do do you do you not have any issues during the winter? The lack of light, the fact that it's cloudy all the time. Do you notice I, a difference? I don't personally. In fact, my studio lights that I'm sitting in front of right now are actually pretty bright. So I think they might be close, uh, Sarah G, to those uh, sad lights that you're talking about. No, I, I don't know. I mean, to me, it's 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 inside. That's that's where the 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 light and the energy you know comes from. I lived in Vancouver, you know, for ten years, so I'm used to that that gray, uh, wet weather that just is incessant from you know November through until April, and you know you in in southern ontario we get a lot of gray days like that but you also get lots of sun and it can be a beautiful day you know and it's minus 10 and the sun and the sunlight is glinting off the snow and it's it's phenomenal i mean yeah you're not going to go for a bike ride but you can go cross-country skiing or snowshoeing or a long walk with the dog i love those winter days the the, totally the bluebird days the bluebird days no they're great where it's snowy and just clear blue skies uh, but apparently the light inside of me has died because I do need, I need my happy light. Although I'm not totally convinced it works. So Sarah sent me, so Steve, a couple weeks ago, I, I challenged Sarah cause she said she had one of these lamps. Like she was feeling a bit low. She had one of these lamps, like in the packaging, right? I'm like, yes. get out the lamp. Let's do an experiment. Let's see if it works. And of course we came up with a very controlled environment for this experiment. And so Sarah was going to send me an emoji update every day um, on how she felt with her lamp. Okay. So these are the emojis that I got. Are we ready? Okay. My first day is chef. <laughs> Thanksgiving. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Probably unrelated to the lamp. Um, the next day is like, straight line you know the like the happy face with the straight line mouth that's like kind of indifferent day or something yes yeah okay then it's like half sad face oh then happy face on day four mm-hmm. it was then- sunny that day <laughs> well sarah t where where are you and ben living i i, I don't what? know where so we're we're up in new hampshire and- oh you're new hampshire so you're not that, that you're not that far away we're- from from me really exactly and it's been cloudy the entire time and this light is absolute garbage because we get we can post these emojis for our diehard fans somewhere uh but basically my two-week experiment has indicated that it has no effect on me that i do well on the days where there's actual sun but i think we only had one of those days uh yeah I don't know. Or I just need a better one. The last four days, I got puke face, (laughs) scowl, frown, angry face, worry face, and then sad face. I thought Sarah had COVID. (laughs) Like, (laughs) 
Let's, how's, how's your, how's let's, your sense of taste, Sarah? Is it is your sense of taste okay? That's the true test of COVID, apparently. It's it's actually fine. Uh, there may or may not have been a correlation with uh, you know, a certain race going on, in which I didn't participate. Let's let's. There were variables that I could not control for in this experiment. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. I feel a little, feel a little race angst. Put me in there, coach. <laughs> I, I didn't know if mentioning the the PTO uh, championships and the Challenge Daytona was uh, was appropriate or not. But it's um, triggering, Steve. It's a trigger. <laughs> I just it dropped four hundred watts to you know to try to get rid of you. But okay, you bridged back up. You're a strong cyclist. It's all good. We can keep riding together. No, it's it, all this stuff is complicated, right? Um, I, I'm happy the race went well, you know, I'm happy athletes got the opportunity to race. Do I feel really ambivalent about the whole thing on a personal level, on a more global level about sport? Yes. But that's my baggage. That's, that's my emoji list, you know? No, it's, it's fair to say that because I mean, they put on a great show. It was, it was phenomenal. It was great. The racing was, was spectacular. The men's race a little bit, I think, more interesting than than the women's race i was i was actually disappointed with the women's race it just was it was great i mean it was nice to see paula win you know and paula findley winning and it's such a great story i mean it's a long road back from the lowest of the lows of the 2012 olympic games for her to get back up on the pinnacle you know of sport that was great to see the men's race i think was more intriguing from a from a competitive standpoint and it was a fabulous showcase but the the word that i keep coming back to with that because of the setup, you know, where it was, it was artificial. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just, it, it, it was a very sort of artificial setup and, and situation for racing that made for great coverage, made for great racing. But like, you really can only replicate that at a NASCAR track. That's why it's artificial. Mm. It's interesting because isn't that sure, like kind of what they did when they got the Olympic Games? It got triathlon into Olympic games in the first place was they took a thing that was like roughly a swim, a bike and a run through whatever terrain you wanted and put it like into eight laps on the bike or, or whatever to make it good for TV and for spectators. Well, I, again, I have a, a, a slight personal connection to that. I mean, I knew Les McDonald quite well. That was the, the days I was living in Vancouver mm-hmm. and Les would call me up like out of nowhere. And he would just like, we would talk on the phone like forever. Like I'd be on the phone with Les for two hours telling me about, and Les's favorite word was audacious. And he was, he was audacious. I mean, no Les McDonald triathlon's not in the Olympic games, but the reason it got into the games is he did have to shoehorn it into like certain criteria. They had to make it less than two hours. He was told that, you know, by the IOC. Uh, he was also told that like at the time, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but the World Cups were ridiculous in the early early to mid 90s. They still had the drafting rules in place and races would finish and there would be arguing and bickering and the and the top five wouldn't be the top five. You'd have one of the top five would actually be on the podium. So an hour after the race, they're still trying to figure out who who won the race. And and the media were saying, you can't do this. You have to have it one, two, three across the finish line. So Les just said, okay, that's it. Swim, bike, run, you know, however you want. And the first three across the finish line win. So I mean, in a, in a way, it was um, it was very controversial, and many people at the time, you know, hated less, you know, for doing that. The purists, you know, in triathlon, but it got triathlon into the Olympic Games, and I don't think if he had done that, triathlon wouldn't be in the Olympic Games. It wouldn't have got that massive shot in the arm that it did through the two thousands. It was a very very important thing, and people have differing opinions about it, but I think it was one of the most significant things that ever happened to the sport. Yeah, I agree. And for, for listeners who don't know, Les McDonald um, essentially was the person who spearheaded um, a massive campaign to get triathlon in, into the Olympic Games and changed all that. And that's what we were talking about is like changed all the format of what the sport is to get it in. Like you said, Steve, like shoehorned it in. Um, and I'm just like, and I, this is the first time I've actually thought of it in these terms, but like maybe that kind of PTO made for TV setup of what they're trying to do with long course is kind of an equivalent, like shoehorning the sport into something that's made for TV so they can make money off of TV rights and, and help the pros own the sport. Like, is that, is that a good perspective? 
Well, oh. I'd put the question to Sarah T because she's you've raced both at a very high level. You've raced high level, you know, ITU or now World Triathlon, and you've raced, you know, in those, you know, other other formats. I'd put the question to you: what what is more relevant? I I would say the and we we saw some of this during the PTA race. the The challenge of having that, you know, when you have a very deep field, and, and I, I would argue that the women's race was not as deep, you know, when you have a 10 minute differential between first and 10th versus a couple of minutes for the men, uh, there are more opportunities to get within that draft zone. They could not have IT racing and have it be non-draft. So I think it's going to be an issue moving forward, especially when you have, you know, pancake flat courses. Uh, but, you know, Vincent Louis. Did he, would he have won that race if he hadn't gotten a drafting penalty? You know, it's, it's going to like, I will be interested to see whether or not they can replicate a similar feel with a deep field, you know, that constrains. Cause also when you get the distance shorter, there's more opportunity. I, I don't know. It's. It's going to be interesting. I, I do think there are major positives, but there's a reason why less realized the only way it's going to be successful is it's going to be draft legal. When you have the shorter format, when you have that many good athletes coming out of the water at the same time, it's really, really hard to reinforce, especially on a pancake flat course, those draft zones. I agree a hundred percent. I mean, and again, those world cup races back in the early nineties, I was at some of them and the world championships in 92 and 94. And this, you had the situation of 60, 70 men, like all emerging out of the swim. Like the fields were bigger back then. They, they, they didn't constrain them the way they do now, but you had 60, 70 men all coming out of the water in 30 seconds. And then they're all pretty good cyclists. They just, there was no, you couldn't separate. There wasn't enough physical room, you know, on the road kind of moving along, you know, for them to, you know, get all spaced out properly and, and, you know, not draft one another. And that was, I think that was a contributing factor to, you know, Les McDonald and the other, you know, powers that be, but it, it was really the Les McDonald show those early days of the ITU. We know that. And he, you know, he, he was told, he said, you got to get that the controversy like out of the race. And in a way, in, in a way he's right because sport needs to be pure. Like the best sports are the ones where the rules, the regulations and the officials play the least role. Hmm. Can, can we just throw out our playlist for a second? Because I have a very related question. Yeah. Our run yeah. list. Okay. I feel like the run list is thrown out already. Okay. <laughs> All right. So I have a question for you. So Steve obviously knows triathlon incredibly well, also knows, you know, cycling and running. I would love to know your thoughts about the recent shoe developments in running. Mm -hmm. So this past weekend, in addition to this PTO championship, there was a uh, marathon, half marathon in Valencia, Spain, where four men broke 58 minutes, you know, shattered the world record. We're seeing records going down left and right on the track and on the roads, you know, times that would have been unthinkable a few years ago prior to the development of these Nike uh, shoes. And now we have, you know, the equivalent shoes by Adidas and some other companies. What, what, what are your thoughts on this? I am um, so curious about this. Well, the shoes, the shoes contribute. I mean, we saw that. I mean, Alex Hutchinson, who writes for Outside Magazine, who writes for the Globe and Mail in, in, in Canada, who writes for the New York Times. I mean, Alex, Alex was kind of the embedded reporter when Nike was developing the shoe and the first attempt by Eliud Kipchoge to break, uh, break two hours. And they called them the, you know, 4% because they were actually making runners 4%, you know, faster. Nike wasn't BSing people. They did the lab, third-party lab reports came back afterwards that they were actually making the runners 4% faster. So the shoes are faster. I think the bigger factor, and Paula touched on this, Paula Finley touched on this, you know, last weekend, is that a lot of, this has been an unusual year, for, particularly for endurance sports athletes, whether they're cyclists, whether they're, they're runners, whether they're triathletes. I mean, we saw this with the, the world tour. We had 
the riders were off in cycling and pro cycling. They were off. They didn't race for six or seven months. And then, then they, they literally compressed the whole season into two and a half months. And we had great racing, but crazy results. Like who would have thought that a 21 year old kid from Slovenia would win the tour de France. Like, like he wasn't on anyone's uh, form chart. So where I'm going with this is that I think what happened is the, the shutdowns, the lockdowns and the training, and this is looping back to what Paula said, this was the first time that she had ever put eight, nine months of just solid training together. Cause normally athletes at this level and both of you, um, wonderful ladies who were high performance athletes yourself know this is that a typical year is train a bit, taper, race, recover, train, more training, um, another taper, another race, niggling a little injury. You got to take some time off more training, more injury doesn't resolve itself. Now I have to build all the way back up, put a bunch of training in to get ready for a big race, um, more recovery. And that's a typical year. And you never really, um, I think you, you don't reach your peak, your true peak, you know, as, as an athlete. So I think what's, what we're seeing getting back to the shoe question is yes, the shoes help the shoes make 4% faster, but I also think we're seeing unprecedented training regimes that we really haven't seen ever like in high performance sport, because all of those athletes are so beholden to that schedule of, of racing, um, training, racing, training, racing, training, and they never get a, they never get a break. Mm -hmm. Not, not to be the cynical one in the room, but, uh, do you think that the lack of drug testing over this year might also play a factor? Yes. I think that is also a factor because we know that um, the WADA testers also couldn't sort of move around and test or requisite um, uh, CSIS in Canada, um, USADA in the US, that they, they couldn't move around as, as they could normally to do the dope testing. So if they're not doing that in a, in a, de a democratic developed country like the United States or Canada, and we already know that they're having problems, you know, getting into places like Russia or Kenya, uh, other countries to do the testing. I'm not, you know, throwing out accusations here. I'm just saying it's, it's, we know it's difficult to test the athletes in those countries. Then during the six to eight month, I, I don't think there was any, there was any testing done. So yeah, it, yeah. it potentially a contributing factor. And we I would think too, like it's an interesting, like there's an interesting mix of things going on, right? Like, so someone's like an individual athlete's response to COVID, like both mentally and how they handled it and whether like someone like Apollo, if um, we're to assume that she had this like solid nine months of training, like some athletes would have become, would become demotivated or some athletes are totally fuel on racing and don't like, like we all know athletes like this who cut, who can come out and come in the top five, like every single weekend almost, um, and others who do better with a big build. So I think there's like, and also there's like the opportunity factor. So like for some athletes, literally there was nowhere to go to a pool for months and months and months. Right. Um, and for others there's, or like the financial aspects too. Like if you had, if you suddenly, like if you had a part-time job that you lost and you suddenly had to worry about that. So I feel like there was just this weird, like roll of the dice on so many different levels that caused a big stir that created a situation where somebody, um, an unusual or unexpected person could like rise to the top. Well, and, and then you had the other thing of the Olympics being canceled and, and Sarah T, you know, this is that like, that's for four years that you've got that date circled, you know, on your trials race. And then the Olympic games on, on your calendar. Right. And for four years, that's all you're focused on. And then that's, that's moved. Now what? And that, that in and of itself can be, um, I think, you know, upsetting, not, not upsetting, well, upsetting mentally, but also upsetting uh, physically because you were, you were trying to get ready for those two big dates, the trials race, and then the Olympic games itself. And now it's kicked down, you know, the road a year that I think that opens doors for some athletes, Sarah G, you mentioned that just momentarily, is that some cope okay with that or well, but others need that fixed date and they're kind of devastated that it's been moved down, you know, the road here. I talked to Simon Whitfield, you know, earlier in there, I did an interview for him uh, with Simon uh, for a client and, and he was saying it. Yeah. He said, you know, for some older athletes, that movement of the Olympic games down the road a year, like that pushes them out, you know, of, of contention. Whereas the younger athlete, it gives them a whole extra year to train. And suddenly now they're a contender. Think about that for a 20, 21, 22 year old, like a whole extra year of training is a big deal. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, we we brushed upon this, um, you know, earlier in the year, but I think it's definitely something that that bears repeating that, you know, developmentally, it makes a huge difference for if you're if you're early 20s. So I, I think in, in triathlon specifically, we're going to see some athletes who are going to be contending who we wouldn't have been thinking of if it were held this year, you know, mm-hmm. and in, in my household, this is something we deal with very acutely, you know, so I'm married to a distance runner and generally speaking, you, you lose significant amount of speed as you get older and, you know, you, you, there starts to be a decline. Um, a one year, a one year difference is quite a bit. It's quite a bit. It means, uh, that it's, uh, you know, that last 400, it might be half a second difference. And that's the difference between making an Olympic team or not. Yeah, it's true. It's cutthroat. It's cutthroat, man. So Steve, you're like, super, you're super, I see you as someone who's super plugged into the triathlon industry. Like, do you have predictions? Like what happens next? You know, like we have this vaccine, maybe things will start to get semi back to normal, like late summer, like what's going to happen and, and who's going to survive? I mean, in terms of the companies, the races, this is the, the, the giant question. Yeah, it, I, I think right now we're at a tipping point of uncertainty. We really don't know. Um, you know, the vaccine is on the horizon. It was just great news. It was just approved in, in Canada uh, today. The first of a wave of the vaccines was approved in, in Canada. I don't, Sarah T, I don't know what the status is in the US. I think you've had a couple approved already. So they're starting to roll them out. But the rollout's going to take some time. I think for the endurance sports race and event business, it's really a 2022, you know, solution. I think we're still going to see, particularly for the mid to large size races and events, be they a triathlon, cycling or, or running event. I think the mid to large size events are still going to have big question marks about uh, 2021. I mean, we've seen it already. The Boston Marathon is already postponed to the fall. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's an April date. A lot of the bigger U.S. Uh, city marathons that happened in the first half of the year have already um, either canceled, gone virtual, or postponed. So it, it, we don't really know, you know, what what next year is going to be like. Triathlon in Canada. Speaking selfishly about Canada, it's a very um, it's a three month sport. It's June, July, and August. Like that's it. So we'll have a bit of time to sort of figure out, you know, what's going on, and maybe by June we could put races on in a very limited way. We'll get approvals, you know, at various levels of government, the municipal level, the, you know, provincial level, maybe we can have 200 people, 300 people, you know, gather and we show them and we prove them. And this is a side project. I'm working on the Canadian Endurance Sports Alliance, CESA, to bring recognition to sort of all endurance sports races and events, you know, in the country, myself and a a small other group of people. We are uh, lobbying and campaigning at the provincial and the federal government level to bring sort of recognition to all of the endurance sports race and event business. Cause in Canada, it's over 2 million people. It's uh, about a billion dollars in, in uh, economic impact and it's nearly a billion dollars in charitable funds raised. So it's pretty, it's pretty significant. Um, and if that doesn't happen, you know, all that doesn't happen. So the economic impact doesn't happen. The charitable fundraising doesn't happen. The 2 million people don't have goals you know, to fulfill and go to and virtual racing is kind of a fill in, but it doesn't really work for some. And so to to answer your question, Sarah, we, we're going to struggle next year. It's, it, it is going to be a bit of a struggle to, uh, to see what we can put on. We don't really know what we will be able to put on. That's out of our hands right now. Um, it's going to really be dependent on what, you know, governments at various levels, you know, allow us to do. Um, the good news is that I think once we get to 2022, there's been a lot of people who have been exposed to, to running and cycling, you know, just in my neighborhood in Aurora, um, town I live in just north of Toronto, I've seen all kinds of people out running and cycling. I've never seen, you know, doing that before. They've gone into the garage and they've dug out the mountain bike that they bought back in the 1990s and they're out riding around the neighborhood, just having a bomb. And, and so it's behooves us if we can convert on some of those people to get them into to cycling, maybe do a charitable, you know, bike uh, fundraising ride or, you know, get them to come out and do a local 5k or a 10k and maybe get them in to do a, uh, a try, a try, or give it a try. One of these sort of entry-level triathlons. So 
Uh, we got to keep the doors open. We have to encourage them. But I think we could see a nice little bump up in numbers, you know, 2022, 2023, after the numbers have been relatively stagnant or down for the last five or six years. So that's that's the silver lining in all of this. Totally. I actually had not thought of that, but that's a great point. Like right now, for example, it's hard to even buy a road bike anywhere. Like they're yeah. taking orders for like end of 2021, as I understand, for most companies. So like that that's meaningful, right? Like that's all of those people are going to need a home and a race. Yeah. I, I, this spring I actually talked to somebody in the industry and he said, uh, you know, their, their company was hoping for, you know, five to 10% retention of all these new buyers that, you know, a few years from now, that would be transformative for the industry. If you have five to 10% of these new people buying bikes who are riding right now, still sticking with it. And that's, mm -hmm. That's not massive margins. Let's let's hope that, like you said, Steve, got to keep encouraging them in the sport and make sure that they stick to it because it's that's what we need. We need growth. We're we're seeing contraction of of the triathlon industry, and I know we're all a little concerned about it. No, it, it, if you can convert one, I I just look upon it as if if I can convert one person, you know, on one day to check it out, then that's a good day. I mean, you can't. You always go in wanting to get hundreds of people to, you know, come on out and check out triathlon or check out cycling or check out running. Um, but if, if you can just turn one person into an enthusiast, then that's a good day. And, you know, maybe that person, you know, can go on and fulfill, you know, a goal that they, they, they want to do. We know that like the physical activity and, and the goal seeking, you know, is a great thing and, and physical activity uh, of any kind should be encouraged, you know, amongst our, our culture and amongst our society. So it's always a good, it's a good thing. And I, I always feel better when someone new comes into the sport and, you know, you know, takes it on up. Yeah. Okay. I have one. I have a quick, actually, I'll ask both of you this question. Um, I love good, good news and focusing on good things, but I'm wondering if you've seen any interesting, like companies that have pivoted in an interesting way. Like I, I, the other day I exchanged an email with Kay Martin who runs Boko Gear and she was like her pivot to making masks. I mean, that was kind of an obvious one, but to making masks saved her business, right? And I think there's been a lot of folks in the triathlon industry and in the endurance sport industry in general who did like a hard pivot quickly and, and save their asses. Have either of you seen anything like this? On the in the events business, I think the virtual um, races have really pushed um, you know races and events to to think bigger. And virt as I said earlier, virtual is not going to be a substitute for real racing. But I think what it what it what it opens up is it 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 allows you to sort of expand your footprint. So I spoke to a run a running race, a, a big running race. They get ten to fifteen thousand people. It's the Army Run, and it's in Ottawa, in in the uh, capital uh, of Canada, in uh, in Ottawa, Ontario, and they, but they went virtual this year, like pretty much every race. But they found all these little pockets of people, and and the run is focused on on the Canadian Army, and it's a fundraiser for uh, the armed forces. But they found little people, pockets of people all over the country that they never would have found before, who were really happy to do the virtual race. So. You know, now you can engage with them, maybe sell them some merchandise, maybe get them to fundraise for you. So these are really like cool little things that if you'd been putting on that racer event, that 10 mile or that 10K run just by rote, like every year, just the same thing every year. And now you're going, hey, like I've, I've now I'm, I'm attracting people on the other side of the country that would not geographically come to my racer event. That's the that was the kind of innovation I saw in the race and event business that I thought was I thought was pretty cool. And the, the, the great thing for them is that they should keep that going on. So it just doesn't have to be the people on site on the day of. Yeah, it's interesting, like in spaces like that, you're right, where there is kind of already a virtual community, like I could totally see how folks who are in the army would want to do a virtual 10k and line up their time against other army people, right? Yeah. Like in an app or something that is actually totally and there's probably multiple other communities like that who have kind of like found each other and congregated in one place and, and even been able to compare themselves to others. I mean, speaking of triathlon, I mean, the running community had known about about virtual for some time and had already been doing it. But in in the triathlon world, like virtual was new. They they'd never done anything before. But you but you kind of go in and you're thinking, um, you know, how do I virtually swim? Well, you can't. 
but you can do a, a virtual duathlon. And, but typical with the sport of triathlon is they were, I, I think they were making it like too complicated. They, you know, mm. they, you know, you had to get on, you know, you had to get on Zwift and do this and whatnot. Whereas like the running community just said, you know, Hey, take a selfie of you doing your 5k and like send it in and we'll send you a t-shirt and a medal. I mean, they made it really, they made it really easy. And that's the great thing about virtual is it, is it, it's an open palette. It can be anything you want it to be. You can make it as technical and, um, demanding as, as you want, or you can make it as easy and simple as you want. It's up to you. Uh, but I think the triathlon community next year, you will see them like doing some cool and funky things, you know, with virtual. Well, I, I think it does speak to an even larger trend, which is these companies, you know, these re race organizers are, have spent this year thinking about how to build community and what that means. And I think that's, that's been the biggest impact is realizing that, you know, it has to be this inclusive space. It has to, and hopefully they continue along this trend. You know, how do we include these people who can't be here in person? You know, how, how can we reach out? How can we make people feel connected even when we can't be together? And I, I have to think if, if we have a, a mind shift in that direction and we don't go back to the way things were, uh, it's only gonna be beneficial over the long run. I emceed a, a, a race director sort of town hall early on in this back in back in April. And, and that came up, um, Sarah, in that, in the talk was, well, what do we do? Like, if we have to cancel all our races, like, what do we do? Like, they were in panic mode, like back then. Like, think about that. They're like, they'd never contemplated, you know, anything like this forever. and. I know race directors, you know, race organizers, these are my, my clients. So I know them really well. I work really close with, with them and they are obsessed with putting on something like they want to put something on. They're desperate to put something on for their participants. And it was, you know, they just, they needed something to do. And the, the one thing that they were told to do, I, I was on this town hall that I was emceeing and they had a, a guy on there, he was talking about this, the, the, the community thing you were, you were mentioning. And they were saying that you need to connect with your participants. You need that connection with them. That was the, the primary connection, staying connected in commu uh, communication with them, making them feel like they are part of the community. And then the sponsors too, you know, as a, as a secondary, you know, if, if you've got sort of significant sponsors, making uh, them feel like they're part of the community. And, and I think this has forced a lot of people out of the box that they were in, you know, with their race or event, be it a triathlon, a running race, uh, or a cycling event, and it and that's that's the pivot that I think has been at a high level, thirty thousand feet. That I, I I think has been been really good. Um, yeah. It's been devastating for some of these companies because they've had no revenue or their revenue's gone from, you know, this to ten or fifteen percent for the year. But they've it's really forced them to to think outside the box. Yes. Okay. Speaking of pivots. So, since we have you here, Steve, Sarah, the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about Sarah's new um, commentating career with Zwift. Um, did you catch her? Did you catch her at all? I, 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 wouldn't, call it, I wouldn't call it a career. Uh, it's a side hustle that I got roped into and hopefully didn't embarrass myself too much. No, I, I, I watched or listened, watched and listened to, to two of the, it's the, what are they, what is it called in the, the Zwift triathlon races? What are they? Zwift Pro Tri-Series. Zwift Pro Tri-Series. So I, I listened to two and and Matt Lieto was doing it last year um, with another gentleman. And you are a much better addition to the team. You work really well with Matt. The two of you have great rapport. You know what you're talking about. Um, but the rapport that you have with Matt is is the most important thing because that, and it's hard. Because you're not in the same, you're not in the same the same place. You can't see one another. I don't know. I don't know what technology you're using. If you can see one another through a Zoom connection or whatnot, but it's really hard. When I the best work I do when I'm doing commentating, I'm sitting right beside the person mm -hmm. that I'm doing the play by play with, or I'm the expert commentary. And you got all these hand signals, or you're touching them on the on on the shoulder. You know, let me in. That you know that kind of stuff. But when you're doing virtual. You have none of that, and I thought you and Matt did a did a fabulous job with the the, the two races that I that I listened to. It was it was great. Oh, thank you, and that's that's a huge compliment. Um, I think for both of us, 
Matt and I just like to joke around. So to put our serious hats on and stay on script is really hard. Uh, Cause really we would just like to make fun of each other the entire time. We have to keep that at a minimum. <laughs> but, but, but that, but, but that looseness, yeah. but that loose, but that looseness, that, 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 that brings up the rapport. It, it, it really does. You need to be that, that sort of loose. If you're really rigid and, you know, uncomfortable with who you're working with, then, you know, people can hear that they can sense they can sense that. Have you, have you had experiences like that where a co-commentator you just absolutely despised and you're just on edge the entire time? Oh, oh, I see the eyebrow raise. That's a yes. Uh, for the, you, since you can't see the eyebrow raise, I believe that's a yes. I <laughs> if have. you want to be diplomatic because you're Canadian, I know you there, guys don't like to, you know. I, I have. And, 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 but I think in this business, I, a lot of the people are, are, are professionals. So you, you set that aside. If you have any differences of opinion, you set that aside, you get on with the job or mm. you have to be professionals. It's not about me. It's not about the other people. It's about the participants or it's about the event client and you need to deliver a great product. And, you know, in our business, it's called sports presentation and you want to make sure that the sports presentation is the best possible. So you do set, you do set that aside, but it always works better, you know, with someone that you're really loose and you're really comfortable with, and you know, you know, really well, and you've worked with, you know, repeatedly, you develop that rapport. It's the first time you work with someone, it's always a little, a little awkward. And I find by the time you get to the, you know, third, fourth or fifth time um, you've worked with them, you have that rapport and it's almost, you can complete, you know, each other's sentences and there's that good flow. Yeah. No, we just pretend you're on a bike ride every time you talk yeah, to each other. Exactly. And then it's fine. Totally. Yeah. Okay. After the break, um, we're going to come back and we're going to do a little I rock because with Steve. Hey, Sarah, I have a riddle for you. What's refreshing, oh. great, any time of day, and super awesome? Oh my gosh. Is it the If You're Riding podcast? Oh no, wait. By the look on your face, it's not. It's. <laughs> It's noon. Yes. It's noon, isn't it? Ding, ding, ding. You got the answer. Woo. Okay, friends, seriously, Noon Hydration has been a sponsor of Live Feisty and this very podcast for a couple of years. They are amazing. They are supportive. And we all get 30% off with the new code, note the new code, Live Feisty. Um, at noonlife.com. So use the code Live Feisty, E before I, at noonlife.com. If We Were Riding is a Live Feisty Media production. Sarah and I are truly and grossly thankful for our sponsors, Noon Hydration, Form Swim, and Orca Sportswear. Join the conversation by following us on all the socials at If We Were Riding on Instagram and Facebook, or send me a voice memo to Sarah with no H at livefeisty.com. Also, leave us a review on iTunes. It really does help. Remember that time we were ranked like number 206 best sports podcast in the Czech Republic? Yeah, that was thanks to you. So leave us a review. We can't wait to ride with you next week. Okay, Steve. So we have this semi-regular thing that we do called I Rock Because, and basically it's a celebration of ourselves because we think we all need to kind of give ourselves a pat in the back every once in a while. Uh, most of the time, Sarah says truthful things, but on occasion, <laughs> every once in a while, I can't. She's tripped up, awesome and I make something up. She... <laughs> so okay, let's see. Uh, I'm going to start off because Sarah normally makes me start off. Um, I rock because I put my foot down and I said, we are going to get a Christmas tree to get today. And we're going to get everything set up because enough lollygagging it's time. And Ben wanted to take a nap. And I said, no, the tree is in the front yard. We're going to bring it in and you can take a nap afterwards. I was tough. I was tough. I didn't let him take that basically that's why I rock because I am tough and I got a tray. You rock because you 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 made your husband not do it, have a nap and bring a Christmas tree in. I love it. You were just asking him to be a lumberjack. It's it's like it's a it's like it's that male fulfillment role, isn't it? Well, we we had already chopped it down, oh. but then bringing it in from the front yard 
to the house, I think was a bit much, you know, we, I don't, I don't understand what happens, but it got done. That's what I'm saying. Normally I don't care that much, but sometimes I can be tough. <laughs> I love it. Okay. I'm going to like save Steve for the grand finale and I will actually volunteer to go second. Um, so do you guys saw it, it, a minute ago, my daughter came in, I don't know, it, it might've been audible on the mic. I'm not sure. Um, but this week my parenting days changed. So I normally have my daughter like on, I try to keep it on mostly weekend days whenever possible so that I can get work done. Um, so today I, um, the last few days I've just been like navigating the work parenting thing in a way that I'm not used to. So I literally have been like having meetings while she's on zoom calls with her karate class. And like today it's like, I feel like I was like those one ball in the air and I'm like texting someone on Slack and then she's on her, she's practicing piano, like, and I'm cooking dinner at the same time. So I feel like I've been doing a, a better job than expected at doing the work parenting multitasking job. So I rock because of that. Nice. Mm-hmm. Um, so Steve, we've warmed you up a little, ah. you get the idea of the, yes. of the, of what we're going for here. So why do you rock? I rock because I'm on a, any bike ride. I'm happy to sit on a woman's wheel as, as a guy, I don't have a problem with that. And there is a reason for that is that, you know, I'm married to this awesome, you know, cyclist who just happens to be one of the you know best masters women cyclists in North America. I don't and, think I could hold on Paulina's wheel. And yeah, I've, you know, I'm happy to sit on any woman's wheel. I, I'm not trying to read too much into that, but I'm most, a lot of men aren't. And I'm sure as, as women riders and cyclists, you've probably encountered that guy who just like, they don't want to sit on, you know, your wheel. And I'm, I'm happy to do that. doesn't bother me in the least. I have no problem. As long as somebody acknowledges they are just sitting in my draft because the problem is not the sitting on my wheel. It's the total stranger. I have been dragging you along. I don't know who you are. <laughs> just say hi or something. Cause this is weird now. <laughs> so Steve, That's a you, creepy. Can, you can sit on my wheel. If you just say, Hey, yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. I normally do that. Can... I just, I, I, I ask if it's okay. I mean, if it's a guy or a girl, I just, you know, I always ask cause I don't, I don't want to be, I don't want to be that, that guy or that girl. So. Well, I think that is an excellent tip for everybody who listens to the podcast. If you're going to sit on somebody's wheel, that's totally fine, but maybe ask for permission. So thank, thank you so much, Steve, for coming on our podcast and talking to us. Hopefully we can do it again. And uh, Sarah, I'll see you next week. And in the meantime, everybody keep on getting some draft, but doing it politely. None of you people can tell me to stop. My town, my crown. We know what it takes to be reaching the top. We're reaching the top. We're reaching the top. We know what it takes to be reaching the top.